In the sweltering summer of 1934 in Charlottesville, Northern Carolina, uh, an evangelist the name of Dr. Mordecai Ham was speaking every night in a fabricated tin hut with a sawdust carpet. Uh, for a month or so, some local uh, Christians kept inviting the 16-year-old to meetings, but he resisted, wanting nothing to do with that kind of nonsense, as he described it. A man called Albert McMakin uh, gained a relationship with his teenager as they worked together on Albert's uh, dad's farm. Why don't you come out here, a fighting preacher? He would uh, ask. Throwing in the incentive that if this teenager were, allowed, were to agree to come along, he could drive the McMakin truck with the other guys from the farm to go and hear this fighting preacher. And this swung it for this young teenager. So the teenager drove the truck uh, to this meeting. He sat at the back and was totally captivated by this preacher's message. He then attended these meetings for a, a month that followed every night. And finally he responded to the appeal uh, to come forward and accept Jesus as his Saviour and Lord. He was the very last of 400 people who had come to the front that night to give their lives to Jesus. A teenager is now in his early 90s, I've had the privilege of meeting him, but over the last 75 years he's probably led more people to Christ than anyone in the whole of this world. His name is Dr. Billy Graham. Now, few people on this earth will have ever heard of Albert McMakin. But in heaven, I guess Alberts will see millions of people who found the Lord Jesus Christ through Billy Graham. And I guess he will reflect forever on the value of the time that he spent with his friend. See, I guess none of us will ever be Billy Graham speaking in front of thousands of people in massive stadiums around the world. But I think we can all be like Albert McMakin. That is a faithful and true witness. And that is exactly what the Laodicean church have failed to be. They have failed to be a faithful and true witness. Now this is the last of the seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor, now near Turkey. They've been challenging, we know that, they cut straight to the point. But be warned, as I mentioned earlier, this is the most harsh, the most condemning, and it's the most challenging of all of these letters. Let's give a bit of background to the the letter to the church in Laodicea, if we can. It's probably the best known letter of all the seven, possibly because of the nature of the city itself. It's a very affluent city, beyond all others, and some reckon it actually to be the most, uh, the richest commercial centre in the world at that time. It was noted for its banking, manufacture of clothing, especially of black wool, which it was famous for. It was also in a seas town, therefore it had a, a very kind of uh, high-level judicial system, a crown court, if you like, was there. Um, it had a famous medical school there as well. But one of the things, that, the, the thing that really made Laodicea stand out was its water. Uh, It was lukewarm. Uh, The water was piped down from up the top of the valley from a place called uh, Hierapolis where the hot water springs produced water that was used for kind of medicinal purposes. And Laodicea, the water had been piped down all this way and and by the time it got there it was lukewarm. You couldn't drink it. It caused nausea. Uh, Its tepid nature meant uh, nature meant that it was only used for one thing, really. 
And that was uh, used as an emetic or a meter to make people sick. Uh, the water became a metaphor for the church in this letter. And it's a sad indictment on this church, uh, on a church that could be so much and could do so much being where it was. The church itself had been established by the preaching of Epaphras. You can read about that in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. But the church had been compromised. Some would say it had been retreated into itself, lacking any zeal to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, like some of the other churches we've been reading of as well. And you've got to ask at the beginning, perhaps there may be resonances with Laodicea and Christchurch Earlsfield. Always good to ask the question. We live in salubrious surroundings, as they did. We live in an internationally renowned commercial, medical, judicial, cultural centre. We live in London, and a nice part of London. We've been blessed with faithful and faithful and good Bible teaching for years, whether in this place or elsewhere. But do we share our faith with those around us? Do we evangelise or do we compromise? Do we witness or do we retreat into the safety of those we know? Well, Jesus writes to Laodicea and of course to us right now because he wants them to stop this compromise. He wants them to emulate him so that they will also be the faithful and true witnesses. Because you see, that's exactly what Jesus says he is. He's the faithful and true witness. And we see that in his introduction of himself. It begins, it says, these are the words of the Amen in verse 14. Now the Hebrew word Amen simply means uh, faithful or reliable. What we say at the end of prayers, don't we? To recognise that what we have said is reliable, it is faithful. And also that the one that we're saying it to is also faithful and reliable uh, to answer those prayers. But Jesus uses himself here to reflect that he is just that. He's the faithful one. He's the reliable one. It also alludes back to Isaiah 65 in the Old Testament where the God promises there, the people of Israel, that, and he says, I am literally the God of the Amen. And I am the faithful, reliable one. As Jesus is now. Uh, he goes on after saying the Amen, he says, the faithful and true witness. Now, of course, he would use that in stark contrast to the church in Laodicea uh, and their unfaithful witness. But the faithful and true act is a kind of, it's an interpretation, an add-on to the Amen of the previous clause. But the point kind of summarises itself, it's pretty clear. Jesus is the faithful and the true witness. There is no compromise in him. See, I guess if Jesus were to walk into your office tomorrow, okay, imagine that. There would not be a person in your office that didn't know that one day they would face it face Jesus face to face at judgment and they are utterly in need of a saviour the question is are we the same are we a faithful and true witness Jesus also introduced himself there as the ruler of God's creation now certainly the dominant message here is that Jesus has supreme authority now, the link between these two statements is, is not clear at first, but he's the faithful true witness and he is the ruler of God's uh, creation. Uh, back in chapter 1, the, in verse 5, the, the two statements there are combined there. But it also includes the phrase that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. 
And he's showing there that he is the first to be resurrected. Uh, this clue pushes us back to various places, whether it's Colossians or other places. It reveals that Christ has sovereign, uh, sorry, has a sovereign position over the new creation, as prophesied in Isaiah and elsewhere. And as a result of that is as a result of his resurrection. So the link, therefore, is made between the faithful witness and Jesus' rule as resurrected sovereign. And see, if we, therefore, if we are the faithful witnesses, we show ourselves to be part of that new creation, of which Jesus is the sovereign and firstborn over that new creation. Essentially what he's pointing to is faithful witness, resurrected body and new creation. He's shown the link there, because he is the firstborn of that. The issue in Laodicea is that they were not identifying themselves with Jesus in their faithful witness. Therefore, what it, the, this letter is pointing towards is to be renewed in their relationship with Christ so that they would testify to his resurrection power to the people in Laodicea. Well, as ever, he's, he's stated his credentials, Jesus has. The theme of the letter, the witness of the church, is in now in mind. Jesus now, if you like, turns full front to the church itself. And like any of the other letters, there's no kind of, at the beginning, oh, you're like this and that's great. There's no commendation. It is straight to the point. It's the harshest injunction of yet. Look what it says, verse 15 to 18. I'm summarising it on a point there. He just simply says, you are lukewarm. You are lukewarm. It's like the water of this great city. The church was tepid. It was useless for God. They had a lack of spiritual fervour, a kind of half-hearted commitment to Christ. And their witness of Christ to others was innocuous and perhaps even non-existent. Are they alone? When was the last time you actually talked about your faith? Not, not about the fact that you're involved in a church, but you actually talked about the gospel with your friends. Someone outside of this church. Are you lukewarm? We so readily excuse ourselves, don't we, with those kind of cultural and social norms. Oh, we don't want to pose ourselves on others, do we? We don't want to lose our friends. If they find the gospel offensive, that might be the case. So, I think if you summarise that, we're plain and simple scared, aren't we? As a result, many of us rarely get the opportunity to speak of Jesus at all to anyone. And we have to ask ourselves, faithful or true witness, or lukewarm? Which one are you? Where along that spectrum are you? Now Jesus explains the severity and meaning behind this lukewarmness. He's showing that the Laodiceans, he says, you're neither cold nor hot, he says. Do you see that little phrase there? As I said, Laodicea lay halfway at what was called the Lycus Valley. Higher up the valley was Hierapolis, higher up the valley. It, was, it had these hot water springs that were used for medicinal purposes. Colossae, further down the valley, um, by the time the water had got down there, it was... It was much cooler, it was cold, it was refreshing. It had been cleansed by the, the riverbed and purified. It gave a life-giving effect. Laodicea's water, though, halfway down the valley, it had been piped from higher up, it was lukewarm, it was useless. It made you sick. Laodicean water is paralleled here to the Laodicean church. They were, right, they were neither bringing spiritual healing of warmth, nor were they refreshingly cold, bringing spiritual life to anyone around them. 
Rather they were lukewarm. And look what Jesus says of them. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. The church lay in this prosperous, strategic city for faithful witnessing. You know, you get all these trainee doctors around with this medicine area. You, know, you get all these, these lawyers and these bankers and hedge funders, whatever they do. And you know, all these influential people where they could effectively witness and faithfully witness. But the church had remained quiet. They probably went to all the society balls, they went to all the office parties. They, they had the most lovely dinner parties with all the best ingredients and best food they can, that they can muster, with all the elite of the city. But unless they, they were probed, they would always remain quiet about Christ. Oh, they would probably justify themselves with all those kind of political correctness things. You know the kind of things that you think, don't you, when you're at those parties or when you invite people around for dinner. I'll keep quiet in this situation. I'll do it because I don't quite know the people well enough yet in order to take that step in that conversation, go that far. Or, you know, you're at a party and, oh, it's not my party. I don't want to disrupt the peace and cause, you know, a commotion. So I'll keep quiet at this moment. Or you might be perhaps a younger Christian, you know, you've just been a Christian for a while. And one of those excuses that will come to your mind is, I don't quite have the right words to say yet. I don't want to confuse, so you're trying to think positively. And so I'll keep quiet at this moment, just in case. That's a double excuse really, isn't it? You boil it down and you kind of get to the point where you just realise you're more frightened of people around you than you are and you're frightened of the Lord God. You're more wanting to please the people around you than you are being obedient to your Heavenly Father. And if I were to ask you, and myself, I, I point to myself here, uh, are you ashamed of your faith in Christ? I would go, absolutely not. But if you haven't spoken to Jesus, sorry, if you haven't spoken about Jesus to someone recently, and you've got to ask yourself a question. What Jesus says to these lukewarm attitudes in the church, you make me sick, essentially. There's nothing to justify keeping quiet about your faith in Jesus Christ. It, it is not the Christian, the biblical, the right thing to do before God. Uh, hence why you see here uh, that Jesus spits it out. Or actually, you must note, he's about to spit out. Do you see that? You see, he, he removes lukewarmness from unity with himself. And notice that, that that is therefore an eternal consequence. But also notice, here's the comfort, there's, it's just a warning. He hasn't yet spat out the lukewarmness. But he will if it persists. And the problem with the church in Laodicea is that they were blissfully unaware of the situation. Which is why Jesus shows them this in verse 17. Um, look, he knows what we're like, he always does. We've seen it in every letter. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But he, he sees how they perceive themselves by looking at just at their material wealth. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired, acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. It's a bit of a barrage, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's enough there. But Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. 
And his analysis of this church, as it is of us, individually and corporately, is, is perfect. Here John alludes to Hosea 12, verse 8, where people, the people of God have, were boasting of their economic wealth before God. And the illusion helps us understand that the Laodiceans, like us perhaps, are, are so involved and so compromised in our culture around us that we lack any sort of distinctiveness as, as Christians. In Hosea, the people of God were, were prospering because of in essentially a double standard in their lives. They were God's people. They were longing to serve him. But at the same time, they were giving money to idols for, for what seems like trade benefits. And we can assume that John wants us to think the same of the Laodicean church. They were probably going along to some kind of pagan worship that was very popular in the area. Or even compromising their lifestyles to get deals done, to get rich. And in so doing, they'd, they'd ignored their primary aim which was simply to be faithful witnesses to Christ. And their compromise had made them impotent before God. Now Jesus says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And literally, those couple of phrases, a little couple at the beginning, says, you're the pitiful, wretched ones, literally. What a lovely phrase. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? I suppose on a wretched scale... They're right down at the bottom. And why? Because they hadn't been faithful witnesses. They kept quiet about Jesus Christ. This pitiful wretchedness demonstrates itself in three ways. You see it? Poor, blind and naked. Why? Because they're the, the biggest social faux pas, if you like, in that kind of high society in Laodicea. Three things that the people there would have wanted to avoid at all costs. This church, he's saying, is rock bottom. And as far as Jesus is concerned, simply because it, it, it wouldn't be faithfully telling others about him. They weren't witnessing to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But now in his mercy... Jesus offers them the remedy. Look at verse 18 with me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich, white clothes to wear that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So we've heard the warning. It's been harsh. Here's the remedy. Here's the comfort. Buy from me gold, white clothes and salve. Now the Christians you see here, they're exhorted, aren't they, to take action against their lukewarmness, their apathetic, unfaithful witness. And the remedy is to buy from Jesus, he's saying. We need to purchase that which Jesus demonstrates, but that which he also approves. Not to say this, must be clear on that, this is nothing to do with salvation. That is simply born uh, from Jesus' death on the cross. But it's a demonstration of us being saved of being part of that resurrected new creation. First he says, gold refined by fire. That's what we need to buy from Jesus. And it's a biblical picture of purity from sin. And the message for us, and of course the Laodiceans as well, is to separate ourselves from those parts of the world and of our lives and our culture that make us unclean before God. What do we need to do? Buy gold. Gain purity, if you like. 
And ultimately that happens through Christ's forgiveness on the cross. But we're called to demonstrate that, that justification, that being made right with God in our daily refinement. So it's our fight against sin in our lives. We buy refined gold in that fight. And in the eyes of God we become rich. Secondly, we buy white clothes to wear. As a result of the nakedness of verse 17, Jesus appeals here to cover their, their nakedness in that shameful state that with pure white clothes. Again, it's a picture going right back into the Old Testament of Israel, the people of Israel in Isaiah 43. Uh, the language there is, is usually employed as an accusation of idolatry that they were involved in. And the same expression is used here in Laodicea to highlight the nature of their sin. The nature, what the layers of sins have taken their eyes off God. They put it on another, idolatrously. Compromising in the world. Keeping their mouths shut for fear of reprisal or mockery. And they had in their weakness become shamefully naked before God. Once again, the remedy is refinement and purification. Like the faithful Christians in Sardis, if you remember them, they had to to live and faithfully witness to make their clothing, make their lives, is the parallel, they had to make their lives before God um, in response uh, to the salvation given on the cross through Jesus Christ. They had to make their lives pure before God. Thirdly, by self, to put on your eyes. Now, salve was very popular stuff in there to see. Archaeologists, archaeologists have dug up loads of these little pots of salve, and it brought healing and refreshment to weary eyes. And when you have tired eyes, I don't know about you, but when you get very tired eyes, you lack discernment, don't you? I don't know if you've ever got up in the middle of the night and gone downstairs for a glass of water or something like that. It's amazing how many things you can knock into at those moments. You're, you, you've been you know, completely black in your bedroom, and your, your eyes are focused on nothing, and then suddenly you're trying to get to places, you knock into things. The worst thing is when you get to the bottom stair and you miss it. And then you jar yourself, don't you, on the bottom. Oh, yeah, and you fall over and bang into something. It's terrible. But tired eyes, weary eyes are dangerous. They lack discernment and clarity. And likewise, Jesus is pointing us here. and He's pointing to the church and he's pointing to us. He's pointing out that in our blindness caused by compromise and focusing our attention away from God, we lack discernment. We're used to focusing on those things which take us away from God, perhaps. And we need to be more used to focusing our eyes on Jesus. So some of us, I guess, might have become anaesthetized and insensitive to our status before God. And in our ignorance, we become complacent, we let a slip in our lives become a habit, and we let a habit become an addiction. The idolatrous ways of the, the church in Laodicea have made them lack discernment. Essentially, what he's saying here is they become spiritually myopic, blind. The remedy? The Lord Jesus Christ. We know in John 9, Mark 8, that it is only he that can open blind eyes. Only he that can make us see. Hebrews 12, we looked at just a few weeks ago. We need to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one who gives sight to blind eyes. Salve for weary eyes. I guess some of us might be here very weary at this moment. Our eyes have been fixed on anything but God for months, maybe even years. And we know what sin is like. It's very tiring, isn't it? It is very demoralising. It makes us feel pretty horrible. 
And if you feel that way, if you feel a million miles from God, if your eyes are fixed on other things, I want you to pin your ears back because we've nearly finished. Because Jesus not only provides salvation for us on the cross, but also those, for those of us wearied amongst us, he also provides great comfort and great solace. Fellowship with him is an offer today because many of us, I guess, have shut him out of portions of our lives. But he simply says to each of us, and it's to our second point, a much briefer point. He says, open the door. Open the door. These verses, verses 19 and 20, are probably one of the most misused verses of the New Testament, really. Many people use them to appeal to those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And they're saying, Jesus sort of stands at the door, and we need to open up uh, open up this door for him to allow him in the life. It's like it's all our work. Firstly, this renders Jesus as very inactive in, in, coming, uh, in our coming to him. He becomes a kind of impotent door knocker. But we know that we are helpless without Jesus' intervention in our lives. And the, the context suggests that John is speaking to the church. And, and we see that. Therefore, he's generally speaking to Christians, isn't he? Uh, we see that in verse um, 19. Those whom I love, he's saying, a, a special love that we have for the Christians in the church, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Uh, firstly, we, with this, this open door, we need to be earnest and repent, get serious and turn to Jesus, essentially. See, amazingly, Jesus mercifully speaks to this compromising church full of people who are unwilling to witness to the grace given them in Jesus. Note, note here that Jesus actually loves those people. He loves the lackluster church. Those whom I love. With anyone in our lives who've been so disloyal to us, we would have given up on them months, years ago, wouldn't we? Despite his revulsion at the church though, Jesus uh, looks at you and me and the church today and he offers us love. How does he do that? In rebuke and discipline. And I've got to ask, can you hear it? You may be lukewarm right now. And if you are, then listen to Jesus' words right now. Be earnest, take it serious, and repent. If they or we do not repent of our unwillingness to share the good news of Jesus or whatever area of our life we want to push God out, then we will prove ourselves, won't we, to be those who have no faith in Christ. And we will suffer the judgment that we deserve. We will be spat out. We need to repent, all of us do, daily. We need to change our minds about that present sinful course, however big or small it is in our lives, whether it's of unfaithful witnessing or whatever it may be. And as motivation and comfort for this difficult life transition, Jesus offers us more than we need or deserve. Look at verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. I guess, who would you like to share a meal with? If you could pick one person, you know, go out for a nice meal, who would you like to share that meal with? I think the person I'd quite like to spend a bit of time with is someone like Sting. I, I really like Sting, a musician, formerly member of the police, the band, for many of you, this is completely over the top of your heads, but I don't mind. I'm going to work with this illustration uh, for a moment. 
I love the, uh, his lyrics. I think his biblical allusions confuse me. I'm sure he's confused about them. I love his weird and wacky time signatures. And he gets Vinnie Colaiuta playing his, as his drummer. He's the best drummer in the world. Are you bored? I guess you are. But there we go. That's who I'd like to spend a meal with. It would be such a privilege. But to dine with Jesus? That's just so far beyond, isn't it? Um, though eating and the door kind of are metaphors here, we need to see what, what is on offer. It is, it is a kind of bringing together. It's a uniting. It's a renewed fellowship and intimacy with Jesus. That is, one, what, that is what is on offer to people who claim to have relationship with Jesus, but in reality have nearly lost it. The signs are there. In Laodicea, it was the inability to witness to the goodness of Christ. But what about for us? We all need to hear Jesus saying, I am here, just let me in. What is that portion of your life which you are pushing him away at? You may have done it for months. Please hear his voice now by his word and by his spirit in your hearts prompting you now. Open the door. Here I am, I stand at the door of your life, whatever portion is, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. Open the door. For all the brave moves a man can make in one's life, there is none that may have any comparison to, to, to letting go of that portion of your life which you do not want to give to God. Letting Jesus in, letting him in to not only be Saviour, we're happy with that, but Lord of every aspect of our lives is as bad as brave as it gets. We are sold the line of self-sufficiency, aren't we? By everything and everyone around us. But in contrast, Jesus offers the, the opposite of that. He says, it's dependency on me. Uh, I, I'm there as your companion, your, to guide you. And best of all, I bring salvation. If you are hesitant tonight in letting Christ into all areas of your life, maybe for the first time, or maybe because you have been ignoring him. Please open the door. The devil would love to, to get to the end of this series of little, you know, seven uh, churches and just for nothing to have changed in all of our lives. And part of us right now, in each, all of us, is probably resisting any change whatsoever. We, we just want to close that door and say, that part of my life is, is my bit and I'm going to keep it that way. Thank you very much. Well, can I suggest that you fight? You be the man and woman that God wants you to be, and you be the man and woman that you probably long to be in every one of your prayers. Open the door, and I will come in, Jesus says. And what if you do? Well, you're opening the door to saying that Jesus is Lord of every part. You're submitting to Him and His way and His word. It means being a faithful witness. It means being fighting all those temptations we have. It means not giving up this week when we make those mistakes. It means being proactive in fighting against those God-ignoring patterns in our lives. And the practical implications of these changes we know. For some guys, it means we need to sort out oh, what it may, may be, internet usage, the way we use televisions, the, the, the way that we relate to women. For some of us, it will be, we'll need to be more careful in how we view our money and how we love our money and what it brings for many of us, it means we need to take every opportunity to share the gospel with everyone that moves and breathes around us. 
for all of those things and more, we need to persevere. We are habitual creatures and we struggle to lose any behaviours and thoughts, however destructive they are in our lives. But here is the best motivation to close. When you fail once again tomorrow, we need to remember that the one who overcomes, in verse 21, and that is the one who digs their heels in, who doesn't let their faith slip. And we've seen each week the glorious nature of salvation, the sure and certain hope we have to the one who overcomes. But we know that this has got to be exercised in, in our overcoming the temptations that we have to ignore God. Look at verse 21 with me. To him who overcomes, I give the right to sit with me on my throne. Uh, just, as I have overcame, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. See, if we compromise our faith, our faithful witness, we prove ourselves, don't we, as aliens of God's mercy and love. If we are persistent compromisers, persistent is the key there. But if we struggle to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Saviour, getting it wrong, of course we will. Sometimes saying the wrong words, look what we get. We get the privilege of sitting with Jesus on his throne, the one who has been resurrected. And just as uh, uh, Jesus overcame death, so will those who remain faithful. The inheritance promised Jesus will be ours as we enjoy an eternity with our older brother, Jesus and our loving Heavenly Father. We will be victorious if we are faithful. So he who has an ear, have you got one? If you have, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guys, don't leave tonight without opening that door and letting Jesus in, whatever area of your life it is. Ignore the temptation right now to put it off. Fight the apathy, the tiredness, and the excuses, and let Jesus in. Even those bits of your life, maybe, that you are truly ashamed of, let Jesus be Lord of them too. Let him in. Open the door. Even the Laodiceans, who are the utterly wretched church, they'd ignored witnessing to the goodness of Christ, either in their lives or through their mouths, even then, and maybe even us right now, we can feel so far from God And Jesus is warning us, yes he is. But he is also longing for us to open that door. The remedy is there. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Let's have a moment of quiet to consider in our own lives. What are those doors in our lives that we need to open? We need to let Jesus come in and be Lord to lead us and be king over.